podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving. At your desk. Maybe at the gym. But you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach. And see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. Glenn, uh, I guess it doesn't get any easier um, losing back-to-back finals. No, it certainly doesn't. We thought we were pretty good chance at the halfway mark. Wicket was playing pretty well. Wasn't much spin, um, but yeah, just fortunately a few things just didn't quite go right. And as we know in T20 cricket, can happen all pretty quickly. And yeah, it's just it's a shame. Hello, and welcome back to the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. I'm your co-host Andrew Mensel, and that was Glenn Maxwell speaking after his Melbourne Stars lost the Big Bash Grand Final to the Sydney Sixers. And joining me in our new studio is Paul Dennett. Paul, how are you? G'day, Menas. I'm very good. I really enjoyed the Big Bash final. Um, I know that a lot of people didn't. It was a strange sort of atmosphere, muted atmosphere, but I still thought the game was quite uh, compelling for most of it. And I'm looking forward to the the Women's World Cup coming up in just just over a week. Uh, First game kicks off at the Sydney Showground Stadium between Australia and India. So if you get a chance to get out there, I think it should be pretty close to a sellout, I'd imagine. Absolutely. I echo those sentiments and I'm just so glad they actually got a Big Bash final Mm. in because I live a couple of kilometres from the Sydney Cricket Ground and just never thought they would be able to get a game played that Saturday and uh, a testament to the hard work by the ground staff to get the ground prepared. I heard that in preparation for the rain, they actually put extra drainage holes in the SCG leading up to the weekend in the hope that they could get the water to drain away and get a game played. So, yeah, great achievement. And uh, in this episode of Cricket Unfiltered, we're going to wrap up the Big Bash final. We're going to talk about all the week's cricket headlines. I also caught up with a a little-known player called Sashin Tendulkar uh, in the lead-up to the Bushfire Bash. So we've got a few cuts from that chat with him. It was with a few other journalists as well. And then we're going to wrap it all up with Can't Let It Go. But let's start with the Big Bash. So the the Stars sort of story of choking in grand finals seems to continue. They lost the grand final. But before that, they were able to knock out the Sydney Thunder from the tournament. So Jaleesa Apps, our co-panellist, will be very disappointed that her Thunder were knocked out. And, uh, you know, in that preliminary final game, it seems like a crucial drop by the Sydney Thunder wicketkeeper Jay Lenton when he, he dropped Marcus Stoinis very early on. Turned out to be extremely costly. Stoinis made 83 off 54. The Stars made 194 for two and were never really in danger of losing the game. But a costly loss, a costly drop by Jay Lenton. Yeah, it was. It was reasonably easy catch as well. Very easy catch. Um, the interesting thing was that you say that they were never in the game. They didn't actually finish all that far behind. And if you look back at the, you know, their three main players, Kawaja got out playing a slog, Hales got run out, and Ferguson, you know, caught down the leg side. That can happen. If, if any one of those had actually been able to contribute, they, they may well have won that game. 
Yeah, but unfortunately they didn't. Uh, the Stars knocked the Thunder out, but I think the Thunder can be proud of their season. I, I think they probably overachieved getting to the preliminary final, so I think that was a good effort for them. And one player for the Stars that star, uh, that starred in that game was Nick Larkin, who scored 83 off 49 balls. And what's interesting is he might find himself in the World T20 later this year playing for Ireland. He's played for them in the past. And as you know, you and I have seen him play a lot for mm. New South Wales. I have no doubt he's good enough for the Irish team. Oh, for sure. And it's been really fun watching him uh, excel in the Big Bash, given that he, he's a, a very uh, more of a an accumulator type batsman at first class level. And sometimes that's the way when the, the, the T20 comes around that players that in the past would never have been able to play that way uh, get an opportunity to, to play in, a, in an expansive fashion and find that it actually quite suits them. So the Stars won through to the grand final to play the Sydney Sixers at the Sydney Cricket Ground and it was reduced to a 12-over affair. The Sixers lost the toss and were sent in by Glenn Maxwell. Sydney off their 12 overs made 5 for 116. Josh Phillippe, 52 off 29 deliveries. Steve Smith, 21 off 12 deliveries. And Jordan Silk, 27 off 15. The three main contributors. And the most expensive bowler for the Stars was Ralph, whose three overs went for 36. I think it was just a really well-paced innings from the Sixers. I think that they implicitly recognised that the pitch, it wasn't... A difficult pitch, but it certainly wasn't a belter. It was kind of, there were uh, areas where you had to sort of respect it and just take your singles and then wait for the genuine bad ball to really um, launch into it. It was the sort of pitch that that type of score was going to be necessary. They didn't need to get much more than that, but had they gone out and slogged and slogged and exploded and got out for 80-odd, then obviously they would have lost. And that's kind of what the Stars did in reply. I think that they were were too gung-ho on that pitch. I think that's a very good summation. And... uh... It was a crucial knock by Jordan Silk at the end there, 27 mm. off 15. And he was just able to shepherd that score to, you know, almost 10 and over, which did make it difficult for the Stars in reply. So when the Stars came out to bat, they they explode, they imploded. I mean, they were reduced to four for 25 at one stage. It started with Stoinis, who, you know, hit line for a six and four to start the innings. And then inexplicably... In the same over, hit the ball straight down the throat to Enriquez at deep square leg and was caught. So that was strange. Nick Maddinson was out for a duck to Josh Hazelwood. Glenn Maxwell was out LBW to Stephen O'Keefe. And Peter Hanscom was burnt by Nick Larkin and run out. So, you know, when it was four for 25, the stars were pretty much gone. It was funny because Ponting, I think, was echoing a lot of our thoughts when, as Lyon ran into bowl after he'd been hit for the four and six, he sort of said, why is he Why is he bowling the opening over? It should have been Hazelwood. And I was thinking exactly the same thing. And then Stoinis to pick out the man on the square leg boundary was um, very unfortunate. I think that we've also got to acknowledge what a very good bowling lineup the Sydney Sixers have, have finished the competition with. I mean, Josh Hazelwood, as I said last show, I think he should be in Australia's calculations for the World Cup of T20 cricket. I think it's a major mistake if he's not going to be. I thought he bowled really well. And I'll tell you what, I mean, there's no chance that Steve O'Keefe will be in the Australia's um, World Cup side um, for T20 cricket, but he wouldn't be the worst selection. Oh, I wholeheartedly agree. I think he's... Is he as good as Zampa in white ball cricket? Maybe. I mean, it's hard It's hard to separate yeah. them just looking at the way they both performed during the big bash. I think O'Keefe is more consistent. I think Zampa's the kind of guy that's going to probably win more man of the matches than O'Keefe, but Zampa's also more likely occasionally to get absolutely slaughtered, whereas O'Keefe's probably has less less picks and troughs. Yes, a very good bowling attack by the Sixers. 
they restricted the um, Stars to 97 for six. Pretty convincing victory in the end for uh, the Sixers. One thing that I noticed after the game when Glenn Maxwell was, was talking about the loss, he did make a few excuses that stood out to me as being a little bit, I guess... I don't know, not quite acknowledging the fact that actually they, they actually performed badly. So uh, Glenn Maxwell said to the press, oh, Stoinis was unlucky picking out the fielder. I don't think that's bad luck in that instance. He hit the ball straight at him. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's, hard, to, it's hard to know. He, obviously, he regrets playing the shot. I think quite possibly they made a mistake at the toss. Uh, I think that they... It's the received wisdom that you bowl first in a game where there is going to be a likelihood of rain is something that I don't necessarily agree with. Um, I, I think that Duckworth Lewis takes, takes into account um, if you're batting and the innings is interrupted and you've been going a bit, bit slowly and conserving wickets, then you'll get a, um, uh, you'll get a boost from that. And I, I just sometimes think in a final, you know, it's the, the old cliche of scoreboard pressure, that when, as a Sydney Sixers supporter, when the Melbourne Stars won the toss and bowled, I wasn't disappointed. Yeah, I see that. But so uh, I mentioned Stoinis, what Maxwell said about Stoinis, and then Maxwell said about himself, oh, I got the only ball from Stephen <laughs> O'Keefe that turned all summer. A- and my point is that he shouldn't be making excuses. The stars were just not good enough. It, it wasn't about being a bit unlucky. They were patently outplayed. Yeah, but I suppose that you've got to say something. And whether he's just you know, answering a question as, as, as it's been given... I do take his point as well. In a 12-over game, things happen very quickly. You make one or two mistakes and suddenly the pressure closes in on you and, you know, that <laughs> that's the sort of thing that can happen. Yeah, uh, I, I don't buy that. I, I knew you were going to say that. Well, he, he just could have said, look, we were outplayed. It was a bad shot. I played a bad shot and we'll have to learn from it. Yeah, but, I mean, he mightn't have been passionately saying that. He might have just been... Um, well, yeah. I was there. I think he... I don't know. I think he... It indicates sometimes what might go through Maxi's head. I think um, it was a very good LBW decision from the umpire to give um, Maxwell out. Uh, I think a lot of umpires would have given that nod out. High-pressure moment. He would have known it was a game-changing moment. And, you know, the, the technology vindicated the decision. So the Stars lose again. The Sixers, the champions, the second time they've won the Big Bash. And, and the tournament that began on December 17th finally concluded. And, you know, we've spoken at length sort of about the tournament and its pros and cons, but where are you with it now, sort of reflecting on the whole thing? Well, I think it's got to be looked at in the wider context of cricket this summer. That It's funny how everyone last summer said, oh, the Big Bash was too long. And they've said, we'll be a lot better this summer when we cut two weeks out of it. Now everyone's saying, oh, there are too many games. It's kind of the narrative has slightly shifted that what was expected to be the big problem was, oh, there was too many games in February. Well, they were gone, and yet the Big Bash still didn't perform so well. I think it's a wider issue. I just think that this summer cricket has received six or seven minor to moderate body blows, and the result has been that everything has been a little bit down. I, I, I don't want to get away from the 14-game 14 14 Big Bash situation. I like it. And I think that there's every chance that it will bounce back and, and um, be much more successful in the years to come. Yeah, I, I absolutely loved the tournament this year. I think the, the fixturing was better than last year. As you say, they reduced the games in February. But I, I'm still flabbergasted at how low the crowds were at some of the grounds for the finals. I, I know we've been through in the past shows about the reasons for that. Mm. But just as someone that follows the tournament very closely, I was just surprised they were that low. So I, I will reflect on that uh, in the off-season as we build towards Big Bash 10. I'd be just as happy if they went back to having it into February. Um, I, I'm, 
One of the things was that the finals did coincide with the first week of school. I know that once school goes back, there's always going to be a drop. But maybe the second and third week, people are kind of um, more used to it. But if your kid's just starting school you know, for that first week, no matter what year they're going into, you're probably not really going to then take them out to a, a game of cricket. Maybe the second or third week, you might be more likely to. Anyway, mm. um, I've said it before. I think the cricket needs to have a, a, an international presence in February. Now, I just want to go through some of the overall stats from the Big Bash. The most runs in the tournament was by Marcus Stoinis, who was the eventual player of the tournament. He scored 705 runs at an average of almost 55 and a strike rate of 137. Alex Hales was the second leading run scorer, 576 runs. So great signing for the Thunder to get him and he he showed his real class at that level. Certainly did. And then Philippi in third place, we... Touched on it briefly, but that that innings in the final was a, a, a magnificent innings. As I said, I don't think the pitch was necessarily all that easy. Steve Smith batted really well in his abbreviated innings as well. But for Philippi to play that way when most other players were struggling a little bit, uh, that was a um, really classy effort. Let's have a listen to the Sydney Sixers captain talking about Philippi after the game. We've seen him bat in many different modes throughout the season as well. We all know he can whack it everywhere around the park, but you know you can't score as many runs as he did throughout the season without having composure and you know making the right decisions at the right times. Not only just whacking it around the park, but also knowing how to build an innings and you know get through get through some tough times throughout the 20 over period. I mean, he would have scored a lot of runs for the season up around the 500 mark, and you know for someone who scores usually as quick as he does, you know, it's it's a very good effort. A great season for Philippi. He's only young, but he scored five half centuries in the tournament, so he's got a massive future. John O'Wells and Sean Marsh were four and five in the leading run scorers. Now, I guess probably more important in T20 cricket, Paul, you might say, is the, the highest strike rates mm. in the tournament. So Tom Banton only played seven games but scored 223 runs at a strike rate of 177. <laughs> He, that was when he was at the Brisbane Heat before A.B. de Villiers. They might have been better off keeping him and not bringing A.B. de Villiers out. Second on the strike rate, Matty Wade. His strike rate was almost 100, oh, just over 170. And an average of 50. I mean, it's a credit to you, man, as you've been beating the Matthew Wade drum for a long time. And I've, I, I like Matthew Wade as well, but I, I'm starting to come around to your way of thinking that um, those, those are incredible numbers. And I, I think that he will... Uh, replicate this at the international level. At some point, um, he's going to explode. Um, he hasn't quite done it at the international level yet. Um, he's gone close. Um, and I, I, I'm hoping he's a fixture in our um, international sides for years to come. And then Phil Salt, Muhammad Nabi and Josh Inglis are the other three to round out the top five for strike rates. I actually tipped Phil Salt to have a good um, season. It's very, very rare that one of my tips in Big Bash comes off. So half happy with that. You should be. And, but Josh Inglis... 405 runs at a strike rate of 154. That's very good. And he's like Josh Phillippe, very young, really good with the gloves, Inglis. We've seen him keep uh, for WA. Mm. So he's certainly one to watch. And to score that many runs, over 400 at that strike rate, it's very impressive. Top five scores for the Big Bash. So there were four centuries in this edition of the Big Bash. Stoinis is 147 not out. Wade's 130 not out. Aaron Finch is 109 at the uh, SCG, which I saw. Darcy Short's 103 not out. And then Chris Lynn was the fifth highest score with his 94 off just 35 balls with 11 sixes. And uh, that was on the 22nd of December. And his strike rate in that innings was 268.57. Almost seems made up, doesn't it? 
incredible. That was the innings that um, really lit the tournament up early on. It seemed a long time ago, actually. It does, but, yeah, captivating stuff. And he will be very disappointed with the way the season finished for the Heat, uh, the way they sort of just faded out. I think that will really irk him. Definitely. Um, and, you know, questions have to be asked, I suppose. Uh, Darren Lehman, is he the right coach going forward for them? So, uh, you know, if I was a, a Brisbane Heat fan and they announced that they were going to switch coaches, I probably wouldn't be that disappointed. Now, the most wickets for the tournament, headed by two Thunder players, Daniel Sam's 30 wickets, economy 7.83. I think that actually pretty good season for Sam's, especially when he bowled a lot of death overs. My thing for him is he's got a, a difficult slower ball, but we've seen in the past that sometimes opposition teams can get used to a bowl of slower balls over time and they become less effective. So I guess that's the challenge for Sam's next summer. Yeah, I mean... You can't really argue with that. And a strike rate of 11.7. So that's a, what's that, a, a wicket every two overs. Better than a wicket every two overs. That's, that's quite extraordinary. Chris Morris, 22 wickets. Tom Curran, 22 wickets for the Sixers. He was obviously missing for the finals, but was a huge contributor to the regular season. Harris Ralph, 20 wickets. A stunning um, rise for him when he was a virtual, well, he was a nobody in, in many people's eyes before the summer. No oh, it was one did. of the feel-good stories of the tournament. Absolutely. And then finally, Adam Zampa, 20 wickets at an economy of 7.2. So that is quite impressive. There were three fifers this big bash. I don't think the, the listeners are going to guess who the best figures, who got the best figures for the tournament, but it was Darcy Short. Mm-hmm. Five for 21 when he cleaned up the Sydney Thunder. Adds to a pretty good summer for him, a century and a five-wicket haul. I wonder if that's ever been done in the Big Bash. Harris Ralph, five for 27, and James Pattinson, five for 33. And the lowest economy rates, again, like the batting, this is probably something that's a strong indicator, and this is minimum 13 overs in the tournament. Mujib uh, Rahman, the Brisbane Heat spinner, just went at 6.16. Josh Hazelwood went at 6.22. Dale Stane, 6.23. Zaheer Khan, 6.58. And then Riley Meredith, who only played six um, games, went for 6.68 as well. So... And Stephen O'Keefe, 6.92. Well, yeah, I mean, there's an interesting couple of points there. Firstly, Hazelwood coming second underlines my point of what a, a fine bowler he is. A lot of people said that Stain was a bit of a fizzer, but, you know, those figures are pretty good in the abbreviated time that he had there. And then Farwood Armand and Steve O'Keefe, the two best Australian spin bowlers there. Uh, you could do worse than have them um, in your calculations for the next World Cup. Neither of them have any hope, in, any hope at all of being included. Glenn Maxwell on that, li- that list as well, underlining that he is very much an all-rounder in, in T20 cricket. Well, that was our wrap of the Big Bash. We're going to take a quick break, then we're going to be back with the headlines. But before we do that, we just want to remind you, if you've got a moment... Go and follow us on your favourite social media app. We're on Twitter and Instagram at AusCricketPod. That's AUS Cricket Pod. We're on Facebook as uh, the Australian Cricket Podcast. We're on TikTok as Cricket Unfiltered. Uh, where else, Paul? Where else are we? We're on Bite. That's <laughs> right. Cricket Unfiltered. <laughs> so, yeah, Oz Cricket Pod on Twitter and Instagram and Cricket Unfiltered and Bite and TikTok. Welcome back to the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. I'm Menas. I'm here with Paul. And let's get straight into the week's cricket headlines brought to you by Piccolo Podcasts. And the tri-series between Australia, India and England is concluding as we record this. So we can't give the result of the tri-series that's kind of the warm-up for the Women's T20 World Cup. 
But already in the, the qualifiers, Australia lost two games, one to England and one to India. And I, I hope that's a bit of a kick up the back, backside for the team, but also indicates that it's, it's going to be a tough tournament for the Australians to defend their World T20 title. Even though they're on home soil, India look like they're a team on the rise and England are always threatening. No, nah, Australia will win it. Um, they'll, they'll, they'll cruise it in. You reckon they'll cruise? Yep, they're miles better than the rest. Uh, it's kind of like, um, the analogy doesn't quite work, but it's like Djokovic having a five-setter in the first round of a, of a Grand Slam. You need a little bit of a, a sharpener early on. I think once the tournament begins, uh, Australia, they're just, they're, they're just consistently, they're just comfortably better than the other sides by a strong margin. So I'm, I'm tipping them to win, which is you know, not the most, um, <laughs> not the bravest tip of all time. Look, I disagree. I, I, th- I think they should win. But, but I don't think you're giving enough credit to the other teams. I mean, T20 cricket is so fickle. If Australia comes up against, you know, an Indian team one in the semifinals that's in red-hot form and a couple of their batters go crazy, I can see Australia being eliminated. I can see the pressure getting to this side of being on home soil. Uh, so I don't think it's a given that they're going to win the tournament. They are favourites, but, but I think it's really... That semi-final day for me is going to be nerv- nervous because I, if Australia doesn't make the World Cup final, then what crowd are they going to get at the MCG? They'll still get a great crowd. We mock Melbourne a little bit sometimes on this podcast, but the one thing they do do is they turn up to sporting events. They got 87,000 there for the World Cup final in 92. So if it's India and England in the World T20 women's, what, what do you think the crowd would be? 40,000? 80,000. 80? 80,000. Wow. Well, um, because, as I said last time, people buy cricket tickets kind of well in advance. And if you have bought a ticket to the game, unless you're planning on flying in and then you decide not to fly in, people will still go because, yeah, they'll be Australian fans will be disappointed that Australia's not playing. But still, if you've been interested enough to buy a ticket and you've therefore been interested in the tournament, why wouldn't you go? And it's I, a World Cup final, I guess. Exactly. I, I still think they'll get a colossal crowd no matter who's in the final. Now, Paul... Some good news for this tournament. Do you want to tell us about it? Yeah, I mean, it's something that we should have been talking about five years ago, but it's finally happening that after a few series where they had experiments of the third umpire calling the no balls, that is what's going to happen in this tournament. And so it'll stop something that is detracting from the spectacle, which I think we all agree that when a batsman is out and then called back because it's no ball, it's a very unsatisfying experience. That will be reduced because now, instead of getting away with all the no balls that don't take wickets, the bowlers will be pinged for those no balls and they'll realise and get their foot back. It's a separate argument as to why they haven't been doing that in the past. I think any bowling coach, that's the only thing I would ask of them. If, if you know, at an international level, what's the one thing I want my fast bowling, my bowling coach to do is stop them bowling no balls. And all the bowling coaches out there who've been unable to do that should all be fired. It's not that hard. Don't tell me it's that hard. I think it's not. But this is going to be great. And you'll see this taking place in all tournaments going forward and it's the right way to go. Plus, it will free up the umpires from having to do that crazy thing where 0.7 of a second before you have to be staring at the batsman's pad and or the... Um, the outside edge of the bat to make a critical decision, you know, you've got to stupidly look down in front of you for three minutes and then flick your highs back up. You'll be able to just ignore that and focus exactly on the main prize. Uh, it should have happened a long time ago. It's great that it's happening now. Yeah, I echo those sentiments. Uh, Brad Hogg, former Australian spin bowler, had a terrible take on Twitter that I was reading. He said that 
that you can look at it this two ways, that if you've got the technology, use it, but the other way to look at it is umpiring is an art that's being lost and he prefers the human element. Now, I would say uh, that's another terrible opinion by Hoggy. He's got some crazy ones online. Before they invented anaesthetic, the art of the surgeon was to be able to operate quickly because the patient was in such pain, you had to be able to cut, cut, cut quickly and get it done. That art has been lost, but, you know, I'm okay with that. Yeah, <laughs> good analogy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now to the Allen Border Medal or the Australian Quick Cricket Awards, as they're being called now, much better term, I guess. Let's start with David Warner winning the top prize in the Allen Border Medal. There was a lot of people that were shocked by him winning the award. Well, I shouldn't have been. He was favourite. Yeah, I was very surprised that there was a bit of a backlash. But, but do you think the fact that he had such a visibly bad Ashes series was where that came from? Yeah, and I, but I think... I think that's the that's one of the weaknesses of this style of award but that's it is what it is you know if you really wanted to you could have a, a panel give every player a mark out of 10 for every match and and do that way but it's, it gets to the point where three two one it's tried and true sort of method it does reward players who are brilliant and doesn't punish you if you uh, if you then have a few bad games but uh, and it's also it, it's flawed in the sense that if Australia loses and no one does anything, you can get a three votes for getting a, a tough 30. And another game, when Australia wins, you might get no votes for getting six wickets. But that's just the way it is. And I, I, I can understand those criticisms, but, you know, I'm happy for him to win it. I guess it shows that in a lot of fans' minds, the Ashes has a lot more weighting and importance. Yeah. But that's obviously not reflected in the point system. I thought uh, David Warner's speech was very good. I thought he showed a lot of contrition for what happened in South Africa. I thought he was very humble. And I actually think it's a wonderful story that almost two years ago, his career was in ruins. He was at the centre of the biggest scandal in Australian sport. And now, almost two years later, he's rebuilt his career. He's the Adelaide Border medalist for the third time. And I think it's a pretty good, feel-good story. Yeah, I mean, it's a remarkable example of the ups and downs of sport. That the moment that he got done for the, the, the ball tampering, which, yeah, I agree, it's the biggest story in Australian sporting history just about, uh, he was as low as could be. And then after the Ashes, he was as, pretty much as low as could be as well. So um, the fact that he's been able to bounce back is great. The only disappointment for me is that on a whim, about an hour and a half before counting began... I went through and just went through every single game and tried to guess who this the... This is why he's on a cricket podcast, because he <laughs> does stuff like this. <laughs> and I realised I wasn't going to have time to do it. So I rang my dad up and said, can you... Hey, Dad, can you just drop whatever you're doing and give 3-2-1 votes for every game of the World Cup and also the Pakistan series before that? And Dad, to his credit, did it and then sent them through. Um, and so I collated it all together and it came out for me that Steve Smith was going to win. So I told everyone... What was your difference in points between first and second? Because it was one point with the official vote. I had I'm Smith. curious how well your dad did. Well, no, no. Because maybe I'll get him on next week. Instead of you. <laughs> you should, he'd do better than me. Um, well, the thing was, I, I just did it three two ones and then multiplied through six for test matches, three for one days and two for T20s. They must have applied some other thing where they factor in the... They treat differently the match referees' votes or the ground staff votes or the... Um, you know, yeah. <laughs> how many tools in a Sid Cram toolkit votes that you know, the, 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 um, the 12th man used to go on about it. So I'm I, not comparing likes with likes, but on mine, Steve Smith was a reasonably comfortable winner. So I was comfortable and confident in tipping it to everyone. And then when he lost by one vote, I was like, ah. Oh. So glad I didn't take your advice. <laughs>
Some other awards given out that night. The Belinda Clark medalist was Elise Perry, the third time for her as well. The men's ODI Player of the Year, Aaron Finch. The women's ODI Player of the Year, Elisa Healy. The Betty Wilson Young Cricketer of the Year, Taylor Vlamink. Bradman Young Cricketer of the Year. And this is an award I was really happy about. Wes Agar was given that award. And he made a really stunning start to his Shield career before Mm. the Shield break. He also did well in the Big Bash. And I think Wes... Agar has a, a big future. I'd say two or three years he might be playing in the Aussie side. Quite possibly. Taylor Vlemick as well, very impressive. She took a couple of wickets in the game that Australia beat England in to, to qualify for the Tri-Series final. She's quick. Uh, she's very quick. Yeah, there's a young New South Wales women's cricketer called Stella Campbell who's very, very tall and very quick. So Australia could have those two opening the bowling in the next dashes and it'll be a real handful for the batters because they're not used to that extra bounce. Uh, men's Test Player of the Year, Manus Labuschagne. Women's Domestic Player of the Year, Molly Strano. Men's Domestic Player of the Year, Sean Marsh. And then the Women's T20 Player of the Year, Elisa Healy. The men's David Warner. Look, the awards were you know spread out among... A few players there. The only player that didn't get anything was Steve Smith. Yeah, it's the, um, the unlucky thing to miss out by one uh, on the main thing. Now, Craig McDermott and Sharon Tredia were inducted into the Cricket Hall of Fame. Craig McDermott, I was really happy to see him inducted because he was a very, very fine fast bowler. He sort of came into the Aussie side when the team was struggling mm. and then ended just as they were sort of on their rise. But I remember him as, as a, a kid... He was very good at swinging the new ball. Yeah, you're right. He came in, um, he, he played that first series in 84-5 and then on the 85 Ashes Tour when Australian cricket was at its low point and he was the, one of the first of the new generation that gave us hope for, for the future. And uh, 291 test wickets at 28.6. For most countries, um, you know, places like England or New Zealand, that would be, uh, you know, he'd be talked about as being in their all-time best side. Just that Australia has such a rich heritage of great fast bowlers that he's a little bit down the pecking order here, but still a fantastic career. So that's the AB medal. On the weekend, we had the Bushfire Bash game, which raised a lot of much-needed funds for Bushfire relief but I, I don't know why they bothered playing a 10 over game you get all these stars together and you play 10 overs aside yeah uh, it seemed really half-assed to me I think t20 would have been a really good sort of game and we would have seen a bit more of those star plays but for me it would just seem too contrived and I think back to sort of some of the charity games we saw as kids, the Allen Border Testimonial, uh, the, the Bradman v. World Eleven, they were 50-over games mm. played over hours. Yeah. And you actually could see some decent cricket. I think T20 would have been better. It's a hard one because you never know how to how seriously to take these games. I think generally it's they should be taken 95% seriously because that's the most entertaining. Ricky Ponding actually made a speech to his players beforehand saying, I know it's a bit of charity, but let's, let's really try and, and play properly here. The hard thing with cricket is that the bowlers deteriorate much more quickly than the batsmen. That um, Once you've been out of the game for a few years, you're not going to come in off a long run and really, and really steam in. Also, the pitch just wasn't very... The ball wasn't really coming onto the bat, so it didn't really enable the most fluent um, of batting. We might be a bit cynical, though, Manners, because you and I have a few criticisms of it. I looked on Twitter. I was expecting all sorts of criticism. It was just basically everyone liked it. Um, Yeah, look, it was a great opportunity to see some retired greats, but I just think they could have maybe, you know, done it 20 overs per side and we had a bit more of a game. 
All right, so we're going to take a quick break, and then after the break, um, I'll be we'll be back with Sashin Tendulkar and the Can't Let It Go segment. But before that, I just want to remind you, if you've got a moment, go on and rate and review the podcast on whatever app you listen to the show on. We've had some lovely reviews lately, and we're going to read a couple out in the next episode. All right, coming up after the break, Sashin Tendulkar. Sashin have you ever um, spoken to Stephen Smith at all um, about batting and uh, what do you make of his no. run of former test cricket? No, I have not spoken to him first of all and uh, the form in test cricket is for everyone to see. I think it's been incredible. He's, he's, a, he's a special player and uh, he's, he's proven that uh, on a consistent basis. I did a short film some time ago on, on his technique and his mindset and I said that you know, as his mindset is so organised. But his technique is not something which, which you see commonly. It's different. But he knows how to adjust. You're listening to Cricket Unfiltered. And that was me grilling the great man, Sachin Tendulkar, here with Paul Dennett. And interesting what he said there about Smith. It is. And to be f- well done, Ben. As we've, um, I often joke, and I, no one else finds this funny, but I often joke, oh, we couldn't get Donny on the podcast this week. But um, to actually have got Sachin Tendulkar on, well done. Um, Thank you. Very impressive. Thank you. He did a press conference ahead of the bushfire match at the SCG and uh, just thrilled to go down there and chat to him in a, for the first time ever. You know, I first saw him at the SCG in 1992 in only my second ever test match at the ground and he made 148. I think he was 18 at the time and it was the, the same test match that Shane Warne made his test mm. debut. And it has always stayed with me, that innings. I think because it was so early in my test match viewing, but his class then was evident and sort of, yeah, I'm glad I got to chat with him. All right, so look, he, he was um, did a press conference. He did give a few interesting answers, I think. Uh, it's a good opportunity to listen to the great man and react to them. So this is our session at the SCG. Uh, Australia has always been dear to me because uh, in 1991, as an 18-year-old, I remember coming here. I spent almost four months here. I almost had an Aussie accent when I went back to India. <laughs> but the, the comparative cricket that I played here at the age of 18 uh, helped me a lot in my career. So, so I've got a, a special feeling for Australia and Australian people. Yes, they are extremely competitive on the field and that is how it's meant to be. But when uh, someone comes here and performs well, they are the first ones to applaud. So I, I appreciate that. So I remember that 91-92 season very well. We had that test match I just spoke about, but then it led into the mm. World Cup. So India were here for months and months and months. That's why I started my Twitter account, of my, tw- my cricket Twitter account in 2014-15. I realised that India were, were here for the, the test matches that summer and then were staying on for the tri-series and then the World Cup. And I thought, this is just about the longest tour of Australia of any side in modern times. And I thought, except for that 91-2 tour back of um, India. So I started an account to try to um, give an Australian perspective on things. But yeah, he was amazing in that tour. The, the century at Sydney, but then the century at the Wacker. That in many ways, I think in Australians' eyes, that's the greatest innings that he ever played. To, to belt the Australian bowling attack all around the ground at the Wacker in a heavily defeated side. It was a good Australian attack as well. That was a remarkable innings. I think that tour must have had a big influence on his career because, you know, Australia is a tough learning ground. And I think, you know, being here for that long would have really helped shape him. Now, let's hear another um, bit from him. And this is a little interesting friendship he's got. 
I have a lot of friends here. So, so you know, Ricky and I. In fact, uh, Ricky spent a couple of seasons with Mumbai Indians, and uh, we both wondered that you know before that, when India was playing Australia, we never spoke to each other much. Just hi, hello, and <coughs> just a formal hi, hello. But uh, those two seasons with Mumbai Indians uh, brought us closer, and uh, uh, we, we've enjoyed each other's company. So when they get together, Sashin and Ricky, for a coffee, that's like, what, 30,000 test mm. runs sitting down together? That's very, it's a pretty impressive coffee. But uh, one thing that is evident about these T20 leagues is that before them, there was a sense of the other with the international sides. The Australians never spoke to the West Indians. They used to speak with the Poms and go in and have a beer with them, but that was the, the main one. Uh, you know, the, the, there's not the closeness that there is now where a lot of these international yeah. players come together in franchises. Alan Border, I've said this before, but always said that he only ever heard Kurt Ambrose say two things. One was skipper, which was his way of saying hello. So Kurt Ambrose would say skipper to him to say hello. And the only other word Alan Border ever heard Kurtley Ambrose say was, how's that? <laughs> it's very funny. I think he said a few cuss words to Steve Waugh in the middle there when they had that blue. I think it was Steve Waugh was saying the... Um... I think there was a few back and forth by the end. <laughs> right, final one. And this is a, a really good question by a friend of the show, Julian Linden, reporter for the Daily Telegraph. He asked Sashin... Which modern player reminds him of himself? And he referred to the fact that when Sashin was here, Bradman said uh, Tendulkar reminded him, him of him. So let's have a listen to this. Well, there are a number of players, but I happened to be watching the second test match, which was played at Lords uh, between England and Australia. And uh, when Steve Smith got injured in the first innings, I saw Labuschagne's uh, second innings. And uh, I was sitting with my father-in-law. And uh, I saw... Man is getting hit the second ball of Jofra Archer. And post that, the 15 minutes that he batted, I said, this player looks special. There is something about him. His, his footwork was precise. And to footwork is uh, not physical, it's mental. If you are not uh, thinking positively in your mind, your feet don't move. So that, that uh, clearly indicated to me that uh, you know, this guy is mentally strong. Because if you're not, your feet will not move. And his football was incredible. High praise from Sashin for Manus Labuschagne there. Yeah, I'd never thought about it before, but now that he mentions it, there probably is a little bit of similarity between um, the, the, the two of them. So, yeah, very high praise. Really interesting comment by Sashin there that footwork is, is much about mental, your mental game and being positive in your mind. That's what enables you to move your feet. I found that very insightful. Yeah, I mean, you often hear the debate about um, people saying that footwork's overrated and sometimes you look at uh, a great player and you see that they've barely moved their feet and actually playing the shot. It's almost a balanced thing. So, yeah, I'm, I'm out of my depth um, sort of analysing Sachin Tendulkar's thoughts on footwork. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's wrap this show up with Can't Let It Go. It's the way we like to end it, the bit of cricket news that we just can't let go of from the week. Paul, why don't you start things off? Okay, so two years ago when the TV deal was announced that Australian cricket was going to get $1.1 billion for six years to split the game between Foxtel and Channel 7, I was disappointed that the white ball internationals, one day as in the T20s, were going behind a paywall. But I didn't really, it didn't bother me that much. I thought, oh, you know, one day cricket's kind of lower profile here than it used to be in T20 internationals, you know, neither here nor there. But now the, the more that I look back on it, I think the worst that TV deal was and... Even though one-day cricket isn't the, the glorious 
juggernaut that it was in the 80s and 90s. The, the summer that we've seen a couple of articles this week, from uh, one from uh, Malcolm Knox and uh, Waleed Ali was talking about it as well, saying that... Idiot. Um, no, no, I don't necessarily agree with what he said, but I think that he, you know, he makes a point that a lot of people are saying, mm. that this summer of Bad cricket... Bad point. <laughs> I don't like him. Go on, continue. <laughs> this summer, I like him. What do you want about? Well, I don't like him. I mean, <laughs> he's an idiot. When he talks about cricket, he sounds like a moron. I don't think he does. I think he sounds sensible. And I don't necessarily completely agree with his point that cricket kind of never arrived this summer, and that was the same point that Malcolm Knox was making. But I've gone on about it before on this podcast, talking about, say, my cousin Richard, biggest cricket fan that you'll get. Dick. He's, he's just not interested in T20. Um, he's not interested in the Big Bash. So for him, and he doesn't have Foxtel, I don't think, so for him, this summer ended on the 6th of January. That's ridiculous. Yeah. We need white ball international cricket in Australia in January and February, and it needs to be on free-to-air, and they've got four years to endure this pay deal. They should go back and renegotiate it and apologise to Foxtel and say, we're putting it all on Channel 10 and we'll give you some compensation. It's a really good point. I think maybe I underestimated at the time what taking the white ball stuff would do to the casual cricket fan. You know, not the fans like us who will seek it out, but the person that just Mm. wants to turn on the telly and, you know, if Australia's playing, they'll watch it. So that's obviously been, you know, that's suffered a huge blow with this deal. But I just can't believe that Cricket Australia would sign that deal in the lead-up to Australia hosting a T20 World Cup. They are literally taking a side that is going to play in the World Cup later this year off the screens and not allowing the general public to watch them sort of warm up and develop into the, the World Cup, which we're going to host. So for me, that was what struck me at the time as being very strange. Well, I mean, it's a good point that this summer began with six T20 games that no one knew was on except you and me. Mm. Um, so if you're the average casual cricket fan who only watches it on free-to-air when it kind of grabs you, you had five very, very one-sided test matches and that was it, gone. And, and when the World Cup comes later this year, it's going to be the first time you've seen the T20 side for years, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. Unless you've got Foxtel. Yep. All right, now to my can't let it go. And Look, I commentated on two Women's National Cricket League matches last week for New South Wales. And and during those games, I was very impressed by one young batter called Phoebe Litchfield. Now, she played in the Bushfire Bash game and actually her jersey, I think, sold for more than any other jersey that day or her playing shirt. So she's obviously captured the imagination of the cricketing public. And uh, I watched her bat for New South Wales in those 250-over games and was immediately struck by the fact that she has one of the most amazing techniques I've seen for any batter in Australia, but especially female batters. She's this wonderful hands, the way she hits the ball. It's it's not something I've seen before in the female game. It's an exceptional technique. So I just think she's... She is already, in, should be in the Australian side on talent, but I understand she's 16 and, it, you know, it's too young for her. But Elise Perry made a debut about the same age. So I sent out a tweet and this is what I wrote. Phoebe Litchfield will be the best female batter in Australia within two years. She's probably second behind Lanning now. Now, on the surface, that's a pretty nice tweet, just talking her up. Uh, and I do firmly believe that within two years she will be the best batter in Australia and I got a a few responses from well I got one from Elisa Healy her her New South Wales captain saying stop putting pressure on her which I'm not sure I was actually putting pressure on her because I didn't 
tell Phoebe this. I didn't tag Phoebe in it or anything. And then Gus Wallen, friend of the show, um, she t- he told me to stop it. And <laughs> he's always having a go at my tweets. But he said, she's a gun, but she's not better than Elisa Healy or Elise Perry. In two years, to name just two is ridiculous. And then finally I got one from Andre Adams, the New South Wales bowling coach, saying, I think you've misspelled Perry there, boss. And I, I responded by saying Litchfield has the most amazing technique. And he said, so that's going to make her better than Perry and co. And I said, I think so. And he went, oh, dear. This tweet was quite divisive, but I'm going to say I stick 100% behind it. Phoebe Litchfield is going to be the best Australian batter within two years. It is a big statement to say that a 16-year-old, and you're saying that she's already the second best batsman Absolutely. batter in Australia. Absolutely. Well, she's, she could be in the Australian side for this T20 World Cup, but she's just too young. Yeah, but I, I don't think many would agree that she's currently the second best uh, well, female batsman I think the they're country. wrong then. I mean, I've seen the Australian team play. I've seen the women's big bash. I've seen Phoebe Litchfield up close. Fair enough. I mean, she does have a very good technique. I've seen um, a fair bit of footage of her, and it is a fantastic technique. Um, and, I mean, Sean Marsh has a lovely technique as well. That's true, and I said he'd make 5,000 test runs. You know that, don't you? And no, I didn't actually. <laughs> and he fell. That was before the podcast. Oh, but if I'd I known s- that, I would never have come on. I sent, I sent a, a, a message to my friend when Sean Marsh made his debut that he's never let me forget that this guy's going to make 5,000 test runs, lock it in. And uh, that's just basically taken away from everything I said about Phoebe, hasn't it? <laughs> no, but seriously, I'm a big fan of Phoebe Litchfield. So you wait, she's going to be the best Australian batter within two years. All right. So, Paul, thank you so much for coming in for this edition of Cricket Unfiltered. Thanks, Manners. Where can they find you on Twitter? At the underscore summer underscore game and on TikTok at paul.dennett. And thank you to Sachin Tendulkar for coming on the show. It was great to have him on finally. He's been bothering us for ages. <laughs> finally squeezed him in. Thanks to all the listeners. Uh, we're hoping to have Jaleesa back next week. And uh, Paul and I are going to be commentating on the New South Wales v Victoria Sheffield Shield match. So if you're you know, at home and you want to watch some cricket this weekend, turn on that stream. You'll hear our voices. All right, that's it for Cricket Unfiltered. Back next week with another podcast. <laughs> Podcast Network.